Are you or anyone else you know interested in buying or selling a home? How about saving the planet? Climate Change Realty is the only company operating in all 50 states that allows you to create thousands of dollars in donations absolutely for free. Yes, that's right. Our service and your donations are free. Climate Change Realty can connect you with one of the best real estate agents in your city. And because of that connection, a full 25% of your real estate agent's commissions will be donated to a 501c3 nonprofit organization of your choice. Real estate agents earn between 2 to 3% of the final sales price when they help you buy or sell a home. That's at least $500 donated for every $100,000 worth of real estate sold when you find your real estate agent with Climate Change Realty. Visit www.ccrbolder.com today and click Find an Agent to help us transform the real estate market into a battery for the regenerative economy. Welcome to the podcast. Lisa, good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. Looking forward to this episode. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and to talk to you. Yeah, we're so excited to have you because we get to have a little fun. We're kind of mixing um, fiction into the real world, but that's kind of like my favorite type of thing. But before we kind of dive into what exactly you're doing, <laughs> I'd love to get a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Yeah, so um, no, no direct route for sure. Um, I actually... I spent my first 10 years um, after college uh, doing nonprofit uh, theater management and acting and directing. And um, and then I, I went to work for uh, Wild Oats. So I spent eight years doing um, marketing for natural and organic foods and groceries back, you know, before people really understood what organic was. Um, yes, I'm that old. And um and then uh, I got. I wanted to get back into nonprofit sustainability work, and so I was um, hired to be the first executive director for the U.S. Green Building Council here in Georgia, um, and did that for a number of years. And we had had lifted up a program called High Performance Healthy Schools um, with a very conservative um, Republican governor, uh, Casey um, Cagle, who um, was really incredibly supportive of um getting schools to uh to uh, upgrade their energy and their water uh mechanics in order to really reduce their usage um and this was during the economic downturn 2008 uh, 2009 um through 12 and so i was um i was running that program throughout the state and you know, I was working for the U.S. Green Building Council. So, you know, obviously our membership, we're, we're doing commercial building and, and residential building and all of that, all to lead standards. But um, I found that I was more and more excited by the work that was happening in the schools and with it, with the young people. And I grew up with a mom who's an elementary, who was an elementary school teacher and then principal. And my younger brother was an elementary uh was a high school a history teacher and then a principal and then a superintendent so lots of education in my in my sphere and um and then the opportunity at um at captain planet came available and i thought oh my gosh if i could spend all of my time working with young people and helping them really accelerate uh their passion for engaging in change making that would just be the greatest job ever. And so I've been doing it for 10 years now. And it is, in fact, the greatest job ever. <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous. Um, how long were you working in theater management? 10 years. Yeah, my my whole 20s. 
Yeah, and what and what what kind of drew you to that work initially? I, I don't usually talk to people who do that kind of stuff. I'm really curious. Yeah, uh, well, I wanted to be an actor, and then um, very quickly realized that there were many much more talented people than me, and that that was maybe not my path. Um, and so I I found that very early on, like I think by the time I was 22, I realized I was really adept at um, fundraising and putting together programs that would um, that would help uh, companies meet their sort of CSR goals way back in the day, you know, when they, when they, their CSR was really more around community building and arts investment and stuff like that. And so I was just, I just got it. I understood how to do it. I understood how to put those packages together. And so it, I just sort of migrated into the management side and ended up running uh, a theater company that I was an uh, early company member of called Actors Express in, um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, actually the original artistic director, Chris Coleman now runs the, the, uh, Denver theater center, I believe. So he's, oh, cool. he's like right cool. there in your neck of the woods, uh, doing great work in Denver. Totally. It just, it seems to me like a really stressful job. If you're like in charge of like this live performance or like putting on like a television show or something, it seems yeah. like you're like behind the scenes, like pulling all the strings to make sure if, if like one thing messes up, you have to run over to the other side. Is, was it kind of like that for like a decade of doing that? Yeah. Yeah. But it was also like so deeply creative and, um, you know, I was in my twenties, so I had a ton of energy and I was like, I was fine on four hours of sleep. And so being able to, oh, um, to do, you know, that kind of, that level of work that early in my life, um, gave me opportunities to learn. Like, I think nonprofit work for people in their twenties, you know, you're given opportunities to do, uh, tasks and create strategies and like nobody in their right mind would have like let a 25 year old run a company but like you're in nonprofit theater like of course they're gonna if you're if you're game to do it you know and you're willing to do it for that salary so i was able to learn a lot of management and development skills um that you know i would have not learned in the for-profit sector at that age gotcha well, I'm clearly not in the right mind because I'm about to turn 25 and I'm letting myself run the company. So um, I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, and when did um, when did the what like kind of switched in your mind that made you decide to begin working in nonprofit work after that? So that was nonprofit work, and then I went into the uh, to, oh, into oh. the um, for profit sector actually, which for me oh, was oh, again oh, it was oh. about expanding my skill building. So going and working. Um, for wild oats you know they were a real they were a billion dollar company and it taught me a lot about uh, proper record keeping and like financial structures and reporting and again like all of the things that like as a nonprofit leader you know when you start that young nobody's teaching you that stuff and if you didn't study business in school like that's not really something that you uh, know about. And so it, it really helped accelerate, I think, my learning and, um, and, and uh, build my skills. And, and it was fun to be on the other side where we, I was giving money away on behalf of a company to community-based organizations that were doing great work. Um, so I, I did that for, for um, eight years with Wild Oats and then decided to go back into the nonprofit space, taking those skills oh, with me. Mm -hmm. Specifically then getting into focusing on green building for a while? Yeah. Yeah. It was really, I wanted to do something that was more broadly sustainable than just the food justice side, the natural and organic and sort of 
you know, this was way before regenerative agriculture. It was, you know, it was early days in, in the food growth movement. And so, um, so yeah, so I wanted to do something that was, you know, more broad. And then when I started working with schools and young people and I was like, oh, this is the thing, this is like Mm -hmm. being able to really support a a generational transformation uh, and support a, a generation's desire to, to, um, to transform the systems of our world um, was, is just, you know, it's, it's mind blowing to me. And it's really, I, I, I find immense uh, powerful potential in that. Okay, cool. All right. All right. I got a feel for it. I like it. So, so who is, um, who's Captain Planet? Yeah. So Captain Planet was uh, um, a superhero that was created in, in, uh, in the 1990s. And it, it was the idea of Ted Turner you know, who started CNN and, um, and, you know, Turner Broadcasting Systems. And he had, you know, was really the, 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 uh, the, the sort of grandfather of, of cable and, um, and all of what it's become. And so, um, and he, uh, he also started the UN Foundation. And so he, he was early on was able to really marry like intense philanthropy with, and intense conservation work, uh, with, um, with business. And so, um, so Captain Planet was created because there was all of these cartoons that were out there and, and Ted Turner was like, you know, we need a superhero for the planet is what we need. Um, and so he entrusted that vision to an executive, his executive producer, who was in charge of Turner environment programs at the time named a woman named Barbara Pyle. And, um, and I think like, she really, sort of set the idea of a superhero on its ear. I mean, traditionally, um, when written, I think, by white men, uh, predominantly, uh, superheroes have always been sort of these uh, sort of savior figures who, you know, a single white male who sort of appears and sorts stuff out. And, um, and you know, being a, a woman, she was like, mm, no, I don't really, that's not really my jam. And so she wrote a mythology that was really about having young people from, um, five different continents um, around the world who were um, strengthened by the elements of the earth. And when they saw something in the environment or in the social fabric that needed fixing, they, um, or that was causing harm, they would combine their powers and they would fix that thing. And the power of that collaboration created the superhero who was Captain Planet. And so like just that idea of that mythology, um, it's, it's so lovely and it really awakens the imagination about the potential of collaboration and community and, and the power of young people. And, you know, the characters actually were all based on young environmental activists that she had met through her work with UN around the world. So uh, it's kind of cool. And that's a little unknown fact about that. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit deeper meaning behind that show than like, Bugs Bunny, like trying to hide from the guy. What is it? Elmer, Elmer Fudd is, I think, is that the guy that would hunt him? And then the Road Runner, and the the Road Runner and the Dynamite. That's like that era as well, right? It is that era, and it's interesting because you know Captain Planet, the Planeteers, they made 113 original episodes, which is just unheard of for. Um, wow. I think wow. there's only like 16 um, Road Runner episodes that were ever made. Like, which really? is funny for really? me because. Yes. Like I grew up watching it and I always thought I was watching different episodes, but we were just watching the same episodes over and over again. Like, which I guess is why Wiley Coyote always, you know, got hit by the acne anvil because it was like the same episode over and over again. Pretty much. Yeah. 
Or the one where he like like the roadrunner like runs through the mountain. He like paints like a hole, right. like a tunnel in the mountain, and then he runs in it. It's, yeah, a little bit, literally. Yeah, I mean, just mindless entertainment versus kind of trying to inspire some sort of uh, heart and soul in the youth, which I'm, I'm always down for. So, what's what's the story behind the uh, the foundation? How did that get started? Yeah, so they they started. So the first uh, episodes aired in 1990, and then um, it, like kids activated they just were like oh well then i'm gonna save the earth like they really um were excited by the show it became the number one saturday morning cartoon like they just got it and um and so they all activated and so these teachers started reaching out to um to turn a broadcasting system and we're like what are we supposed to do with all these activated children (laughs) you know like you've got them all like fired up like we're not sure what we're supposed to do with them now and so um so barbara pile again um figured out a way to take uh, a portion of the distribution proceeds and the, um, they started to make, you know, obviously like, you know, Captain Planet backpacks and Captain Planet um, lunch boxes and all of the, um, you know, the things that come along with a, a, a top hit in, in for kids. And um, so they took also some uh, portion of those residuals um, and all of that was directed into a foundation and that foundation began to provide small grants to educators so they could um, actually do a project with their activated students. So imagine like a classroom, you know, they get all excited and they, and they look around and they figure out like, well, what needs fixing where we are? And they're like, Oh my gosh, we don't have any pollinator plants on our school schoolyard. Like we need to plant for the bees and the, and the butterflies. And so they would apply for a small grant and that would allow them to buy, you know, the materials that they needed to execute that project. That was basically the way that the small grants worked um so it and it was across the board i mean you had classrooms who were doing um riparian restoration for streams and rivers you had them doing tree planting we had them doing uh, garden installations they were doing uh, water quality testing and um advocating for um for policy changes around you know uh clean water and so really dynamic and interesting and over the course of 20 years doing the small grants, um, the foundation directly uh, invested in over a million kids in their projects. Um, and then right before I came on board, the um, the, the board of directors uh, wanted to start operating some best practice programs because they're like, you know, for 20 years, we've been giving out grants and we have all this information about, you know, what kinds of projects young people are wanting to do. There's got to be some ways to do them you know, the best possible way from, you know, learning from, from the grantees that we've had. And so we started building programs in 2012. And, uh, and so a decade later, we have four operating programs that are persistent now. Love it. Well, I hope you can, you can get more now, like when you talk about getting out or like funding projects where people are either gardening or doing riparian restoration, I think that's really awesome. That's like the kind of essential information or essential education that, that kids will really remember for a lifetime. As you're talking about this, I'm trying to think back to when I was in school and when I would go out and do something interesting like that. And the only thing I can remember is when we were in seventh grade, I grew up in a, a very like mountain town. We had beautiful lakes and, and hiking trails trails and like the only day of seventh grade science class that I remember is that we all like there was literally a hike there literally the the Martin J Ryerson school which was sixth to eighth grade 
was right on the state park. So we could actually walk around the fence and enter the state park. And I remember she took our whole class up maybe like a half a mile into the woods and we were all running through the, through the mud and stuff. And then we had like nets and we were like looking at crayfish and stuff. And I like, I still think back to that, that one day of science class was my favorite day of the whole year. So I having, I'm really a big fan of having more like education programs or, or, or curriculum like that. I think it's so meaningful to get kids connected to the environment. So when when the foundation has this idea of bringing this mythology of Captain Planet to life, I love this idea of people from all across the globe wanting to advocate for environmental stewardship and then coming together and creating this superhero because that's what really collaboration is. It's when a bunch of people get together. They can not just do, if there's five people, they can't just do five times as much work. They could do a hundred times as much work, I believe, when five people get together. So when you're thinking about this idea, when you're doing the work at the foundation, what does it exactly mean to bring this mythology to life? So, it, it, I mean, in its in its current incarnation, it it really has a lot a lot of direct action work. Meaning, so again, for you know, really for the first 25 years, so even after I, you know, joined and we started building um, operating programs, those programs were still facilitated through K twelve, and then through also informal educators. Meaning, like there might be nature centers or boys and girls clubs or or scout troops that would also use the programs that we had developed. So we have a program called Project Learning Garden that puts uh, gardens into schools. Um, it importantly teaches young people um, how to grow food and how food actually um, comes to their plate, which a lot of young people don't understand at all. Um, mm -hmm. Most young people think that it just magically appears in a plastic bag, which is just, you know, sort of horrific. And um, and, it, you know, it's important just from a life skills standpoint, um, but it also lets them take ideas that they learned in the classroom and put them to practice in the world that they that they inhabit. Right. Because, you know, you, you learn about science and um, natural systems, but unless you see how those actually um, play out in the, the real world, it's hard to really understand them. Um, it, conceptually, you know, like really deeply in the body. And um, and so. So we love Project Learning Garden for that reason. And it, you know, it, it's in uh, uh, close to almost 700 schools now, uh, elementary schools across the country. And so I think 26 states we're in now. And um, and, wow. and that's wow. exciting. You know, that's a lot of that's a lot of young people who have access uh, to that program on a regular basis. If you figure, you know, most schools have about um, 700 students or so, you know, you're sort of creeping up on half a million kids every year that have access to that. So that's a great program. We have another program called Project Hero that really is about helping connect kids to understanding about endangered and threatened species and helping catalyze the natural empathy that they have when they learn about that. You know, when, when kids learn that like things are dying and that it's, it's really human-based decisions that are causing that, they're like, oh, what? Well, what are we going to do about that? You know, and um, there really just hasn't been anything for teachers to be able to turn to, you know, and so they've often had to just say, well, you know, it, yeah, it's a problem. Let's like make a poster about our favorite endangered species or let's write a letter to um, to a legislator, which, you know, those are those are decent actions, but, you know, I bet we would argue that a better action, um, something that's uh, um, that doesn't really sort of encourage apathy, you know, that really catalyzes empathy into action 
would be to learn about what right in your own community is threatened and endangered and then create a project to aid that. So to do a habitat restoration or a planting or some sort of activity that will um, support those um, locally threatened and endangered species. And so that's what Project Hero is. And it's basically, it lets young people go on a quest. It's a um, it's all web-based. Um, and then they come off screen and go out just like you did uh, in seventh grade. They go out into the woods and actually begin to put... Um, the, their ideas into practice um, to, to help endangered species. What we found more recently, since um, really since 2016, um, was when Gen Z just came sort of knocking on our door and they said, you know, we want to be taught directly. We want to activate and do more direct action campaigns that are not facilitated necessarily through adults because we're sort of and great adults. We don't think they're doing enough. We don't think they're doing it fast enough. We don't think they're taking this seriously enough. Um, and so we're going to change things. And, um, you know, it's interesting because I think um, I was talking to somebody the other day who was, who was like, well, what about the millennials? I'm like, well, the millennials were into it. Like they got it, but they weren't necessarily mm -hmm. as active as Gen Z is. And, um, and she was like, oh, it was like that John Mayer song waiting on the world to change. I'm like, Kind of. I was just listening to that before the podcast. Yeah, it's like kind of like it, it, it. The millennials were ha, have been really great about raising awareness and being vocal about it, but Gen Z is like they are putting their time and bodies on the line um, in order to really um, implement campaigns that that where you can see really tangible shifts in policies and systems and. Um, and that's sort of where their head is really around the climate uh, crisis and around the ocean plastics crisis. Like those are the two things that have really lit them up. Um, and so in 2016, we started doing these direct trainings with Gen Z and now Gen Alpha. And um, and they are extraordinarily effective change makers. And so we, um, uh, we have over the last several years trained about 2,500 young people from 90 countries and they have gone about implementing campaigns um, at various levels of success and with a lot of collaboration and a lot of amplification of each other. Well, I'll tell you this, I, I can definitely attest to that because I'm actually the first year of Gen Z. And I, first off, it's hard to broadly generalize people into generations. Everyone's different. Everyone has different passions. But I, I totally get what you're saying because I started my business by knocking doors in Boulder. So that means that every um, a lot of the all the college kids I met were, were younger than me. So they're all in the same generation as me, but they're younger. And every time they hear Climate Change Realty, they're like, whoa, that's really, really cool. Like, that's so awesome. I can't believe you're doing that. Like, thanks for knocking on the door. And then they don't have any money to sell a house, so they can't actually help with the business. Well, but they can help with with the movement because it's there's more than just the real estate business. It's all these different industries coalescing and coming together. Um, and I think that's that's really, really cool. But yeah, I'm still hung up on this. Like, like I, I really did not like school. And I'm thinking back to this day in seventh grade and it like makes me like really happy and excited. So I just wish there was more stuff like that in the education system. You know, if you think back to before we even had the education system, what we used to do is just go out and hunt and gather and spend all our time out in nature. And that's kind of what we what we did. Um, what what do you think the role is of these 
I would say like the K to 12 students, like people before they get to college where they still can't kind of go out and start a business or do something. What role do you think they have to play in this, um, whether we're talking about environmental stewardship or removing plastic from the ocean? It's so interesting that you bring those two up as issues that Gen Z is concerned about, because like. (laughs) that's like me like literally i'm like uh, my business is all about um removing co2 from the atmosphere um create decarbonizing the economy and then i also insist on including um plastic pollution in that as well because it's killing all of the life in the ocean and we're consuming it but um yeah so as far as people who aren't like of the adult age you know like the, the five to 17 year olds what role do you think they have to play in this movement oh it's enormous i mean they're they're really effective we um I'll give one example. So there was a a young girl named Chloe May Espinosa who um, had, uh, you know, like a lot of her peers had seen the the video of the of the turtle with the straw in its nose and had just lost their minds about it. Um, And so she started um, a small organization where she lived in Orange County, California, called Skip the Plastic Straw. And she basically had been raising awareness with her peers and they had all made personal pledges, you know, not to use plastic straws any longer. And um, but she came to a training that we did. um, We uh, uh, in 2018, we co-founded a a program called Ocean Heroes Boot Camp with an organization called Lonely Whale. And the first training that we did was in New Orleans at the aquarium, they were kind enough to host us in 2018. And Chloe May was one of the young people who came. We had about 130, I think, young people who who showed up that for that very first training. And it was three days. And and we really we 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 brought peer activists or peer change makers to cross train with their um, with the attendees. Um, and we tried to remove adults as much as possible from that because. Uh, again, like what we've noticed is that Gen Z, they're more interested in learning from each other right now and really sort of, um, uh, doing creative collaborative thinking with each other, um, to redesign the world that they want to inhabit and that they think the world should be. And adults, you know, we, we get in the way because we're like, well, that probably won't work or, you know, well, that's a cool idea, but maybe it's not, you know, doable. And like Gen Z's like, oh, hush it. Like, just hush. You had your chance, you know? And um, I was literally thinking that as you're saying that. I mean, I I don't, (laughs) nobody, nobody, not, not that they're wrong, but when someone has, when a bright eyed person has an idea about what they want to do, you should never be like, "Mm, that's probably not going to work. You should be like, you should provide affirmation and then criticism's fine, but you don't start with being like, hmm, I don't know about that. I just, I, I, I hate people who do that. Yeah. And it's pretty common. I mean, I think, you know, I think for a lot of people who have, you've been on the planet for a while, they're like, oh, well, we've seen people try that and it hasn't worked before. And I think they're trying to be helpful, but it's not helpful to your point. So, um, so we, we do try to, um, to, to bring um, young people to cross train with each, each other. But in any case, the things that we really try to emphasize is like, how do policies get made and how do you, as a young person, even as a non-voter engage in policy uh, creation and um, transformation? How do, how does supply and demand work within supply chains and within corporate uh, purchasing behaviors? And then, um, and then how do you really communicate the science and the facts of the issues so that you can be an effective um, 
change maker with your peers and and with your community. And so um, so we 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 were teaching about supply and demand, and this really like Chloe May, she was just like, oh okay. Well, that makes complete sense to me. And so she went back. Um, she was 11 years old at the time. She went back um, to her school district um, nutrition director who was in charge of all the purchasing. And within 10 days had gotten a commitment for the removal of plastic straws from all of the schools across her school district, and then immediately turned to the neighboring two school districts in Orange County, Southern California. Those are very large school districts. Got them yeah, to agree yeah. to remove plastics from their purchasing uh, line items. Um, went to a, a giant medical center, got them to remove it. And then over the next couple of years, removed it from, I believe she ended up seven school districts and a giant medical uh, center and it was just the first uh, year alone. We we could see that she had pulled like five million straws out of circulation, and you know I was talking to her and I was like, "Call me, May. okay?" So I know a lot of adults and a lot of adult-led NGOs that have been trying for years to get purchasing changes at the school district level. Like, what did you do? And she was like, "Well, I just I I I talked about cost avoidance, like y'all taught me," and I thought to myself. Oh my gosh, if I'm a purchasing uh, director at a school district and an 11 year old starts talking to me about cost avoidance, <laughs> like I am sure enough doing what they say because I don't know how to have that conversation with an 11 year old, you know? And, um, and I was like, see, it really is about helping them understand the bits of the system and how you use the language of the system to transform it. And, um, and so that really, I think for us was like, Ooh, light bulb moment. Um, and so we, you know, we do that more and more and more as often as possible. That's a huge light bulb moment. I mean, the idea that a 11 year old is teaching, uh, I guess I'm not sure if it's, it's a business, how, how it works with the way that the school systems are picking what products they should purchase for the students. But she's like, Hey, this, um, this system could be a little bit better. And she's 11 year old and she makes, and she, if she makes sense, it's like, wow, it's kind of hard to deny. One thing I wanted to bring up. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing story. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I'm always trying to encourage, I think my audience, actually, I have data on my audience is, is primarily like 18 to like 34, mostly like that, my age demographic. And I'm always trying to, to encourage people who are listening to be like, hey, you can go out and you can make an impact with your voice, whether you're starting a venture or you're talking to your representative or you're going out and you're doing things that really can make an impact. I never even thought to bring it down even lower. And this idea that a younger person, well, she obviously is, is in that school system. So I think that that is a factor as well, could have, have an impact. And you're saying that like NGOs and stuff were trying to do that and they couldn't do it. And it's just this one girl. By the end of the year, um, the Orange County Register had called her one of the 100 most powerful people in Orange County, which I just loved. I was like, that, that is so awesome. And, she, you know, she has continued her work. She continues to do her work. But, you know, for us, we had seen a lot of young people activate um, and want to do this work. But what we had noticed was that the from the point of activation to them actually being able to successfully implement um, change was a, a really long period of time. And we knew that we were losing a lot of um, really talented change makers because they were just, they were hitting brick walls or they were, you know, they weren't able to overcome some of the mm -hmm. obstacles and they were, you know, choosing to, to put their energy into other things, which makes complete sense. But, um, but we knew like generationally that the impulse has been systems change 
you know, uh, broadly, you know, even when we talk about, you know, justice and we talk about, you know, environmental and social justice and, you know, those sort of, you know, big capital S systems that, that need transforming. And, um, and so because we could see the generational impulse, we wanted to, to figure out if we could help unlock what, what it is that lets them be successful early enough that they can stay with that and, and really have, you know, those, the numbers finally on the side of transformation. You know what I mean? Cause otherwise I think you still yeah. have those couples who couple young people who stick with it, you know, and they, you hear about them, but it feels like they, they're just, you know, super unique or something. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, the the, mm-hmm. the the impulse and the desire is so strong across the generation. And so how do we, as quickly as possible, train and scale across the generation so that the system has no choice but to transform because its, it's future stakeholders are saying unequivocally that they will not accept it any longer and that they will right. not participate in right. it. Yeah. I, I don't think the uniqueness is in the desire or the yeah, the desire to want to go out and improve things. I think uniqueness is simply comes from something that anyone can control. You can become a unique change maker just by taking action. I think it's that simple. It's not about how intelligent you are or what your background is. It's just about your willingness to actually go out and do something because most people are in their routines and just continue on. If you want to see change, you have to make it. And the only way to do that is to just try to do something. And I, I can't kind of emphasize overemphasize that point too much because I've just seen it, seen, seen it over and over and over again that you can really even if you just impact one person, it can be really, really meaningful to see how your choices affect someone else positively or, you know, an entire e- ecological biosphere, depending on that. The the straw example is interesting. It's not, you know, it's not like the biggest issue in the, in the world. And then, of course, we're talking about California. But imagine if she had gotten, if she was in, I don't want, I don't know which states are, are known for being less environmentally friendly, but maybe she had, if she wasn't in California, and she got a group of 10 of her friends to go and talk to someone, maybe that would have more of an impact as well. I'm wondering how that might work elsewhere. But one thing I did want to bring up is I wanted to give a shout out to um, Vance Martin, who's the president of the Wild Foundation. He was on the show a couple months ago. And one of his quotes is like, if someone tells you that what you're trying to do is impossible, then you're on the right track. I just, I loved that. And that was relating to what we were, (laughs) what we were talking about before. But, um, so in regard in regards to taking action, what do you see as the main reason why these young folks are actually signing up for your trainings to begin with? Well, I think that um, that they are seeing um, they're seeing climate trends like they're being they have access to an incredible amount of information and data that, um, you know, I mean, they're carrying a computer around in their pocket. That computer sure. is giving them information that most generations uh, before them did not have, in, you know, have. Well, they're as smart as me. They I think. they have an incredible amount of information. It's about what do they do with that and how can they put that that information to work, right? And so, um, and so that's what the training helps them do. They 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 see that the change needs to happen. They can see it, you know. Like I said, we've, you know, we've trained people from 90 different nations. So I think about 
you know, uh, the, the young people on Cayman um, on the islands who um, were able to stop a new cruise ship port from being um, created that had already, the deal had already been done by, between their government and the cruise ship line. It was going to displace and destroy the better part of their barrier reef right off of Grand Cayman. And, um, and the government was telling them, oh, well, we're going to transplant corals and it's going to be fine. And so the community um, wasn't really responding. And these young people started looking at the science behind that. And they were like, well, that's just a crock. Like, that's not going to happen. Um, those corals aren't going to take. They're not going to transplant. And the number that they're suggesting transplanting is, is it's, it, it's not even a drop in the bucket of what's going to be destroyed. And then they really started sort of doing the math in their heads about like how many people's livelihoods were going to get impacted and what that really was going to do for the tourism and the beauty and also the resiliency of their island, you know, where they already are starting to see sea level rising. And here you want to take out one of the barrier reefs that is, you know, helping to mitigate that. Um, and so they ran a counter education campaign um, across the island. They taught the populace what the government wasn't telling them. That caused a judge to require a referendum vote on the deal that the government, again, had already struck with this cruise company. And it was voted down. And they had to undo the deal and start over. And, you know, so when we talk, and those were 16 and 17 year olds. And so when we talk about the, you know, the power of these young change makers to do things at, you know, national scale, like they do have that, that capacity and they do have that desire. And, um, and I think, I think that, you know, for those of us who have the ability to, uh, to support train invest in and amplify the work that they're doing in order to really create these transformations across systems so that we we have the opportunity for a climate-friendly future. We have the opportunity for a livable future, not just for humans, which now, you know, that starts to become a question mark, um, but for so many species um, that we share this space with, um, I think that that young people, they get that. They're hearing it. They're seeing it and they 100% believe it's truth and they don't want to be apathetic about it. They just don't have, they just, it's their future. Like they're looking at the, you know, it's their future and, and they are determined to, uh, to alter the course. And, and so that's just where we're at. It's their future. It's our future. We've all we're all um, descendants of Mother Earth. You know, gotta love it. Um, so, so at these trainings, are you specifically teaching more like action points and strategies, or do you also teach the um, the issues as well, or do they kind of come pre-educated on that topic? Well, they come they come definitely passionate about something that they want to shift. Um, the Planetary Alliance. Um, purposefully tries to uh, provide enough breadth that if, you know, what you are passionate about is mangrove restoration, uh, yeah, then yeah. there's something for you. If you are passionate about uh, renewable energy, uh, you know, transforming to a renewable energy future, there's something for you there. Um, but at the, at the, at the bottom of it, it's really about like, you know, um, corporate 
uh, and supply chain behaviors, policies that, you know, that require change and then also um, peer and community influencing and awareness raising. So, so where we maybe um, provide education about issues is really more around um, the science and where to find the data to support the things that you're passionate about and then how to best communicate that science in a way that people can hear it so that they understand what it is that you're trying to do. Um, but we don't do, I mean, we don't need to teach them what the issues are. They, okay. they already know that stuff and they're, they're already coming with, with a pretty good idea of what they want to change. They just need support in designing those campaigns and then implementing mm-hmm. and amplifying those campaigns. Delightful. So when you mentioned the Planeteer Alliance, is, is that a separate program? Is that a, is that a newer program that the foundation is working on? Basically an evolution or an outgrowth. So we, we left Ocean Heroes with um, Lonely Whale um, towards the middle of last year and, um, and um, evolved into the Planeteer Alliance in order to really grow uh grow the breadth of, of what, um, of what we could address. What we found were that, you know, the, the ocean heroes work was really, um, very focused and, and appropriately. So on the ocean plastics crisis, a lot of the young people who we were training, who were being successful there were already pivoting to broader climate change stuff, closing down coal power fire plants and, um, and implementing, um, renewable energy, uh, requirements and, um, trying to transition fleets to electric and all, you know, all kinds of other things. Um, we have a whole group that is really passionate about sharks and stopping the shark finning and just the sort of callous killing of sharks um, because we have this sort of very similar to what's happening out West with wolves. Like, you know, humans, we just have an issue with apex predators. And um, I was talking to the um, Mike, um, uh, Phillips, who was the biologist who reintroduced wolves to Yellowstone. And he's like, I don't know that we can call anything an apex predator anymore, Lisa, if we're not talking about a human because we are the most apex and the cruelest of all the predators. And I was like, yeah, that's actually a, a pretty fair point, Mike. Um, so yeah. So, I mean, you know, humans have an issue with apex predators. And so there are a lot of young people who are really passionate about, um, about supporting those particular species um, and and changing the narrative around them so that we don't eradicate them completely and and unnecessarily uh, destroy you know their beauty and their presence on this planet. Um, frankly, I mean, talk about disruptive behaviors. Like you take out the apex predator and you have really crashed an ecosystem. And so, um, yeah. So. They right. come, right. you know, they come with the stuff that they're passionate about and we try to help them. I get that. Yeah. One of the things I I find very, I don't even have a word for it. I'll, I'll say interesting is that there is this really mainstream, rigid focus on CO2 emissions and climate change. But it would appear to me that the biodiversity crisis is accelerating and has is kind of at a, a worse existential level than the climate crisis is at this point. And there are. I'm always trying to figure out ways to use the economic machine 
to create environmental stewardship. And it's really tricky with biodiversity loss because people in the in economics only care about making money for other people. So it's a tricky thing that I'm consistently thinking about. And when you talk about this example of a, a ship liner trying to build a new port and killing off more corals, I spent a year in Australia and I was really excited to go see the reef the Great Barrier Reef, and it's dead. You know, it's just all white, white bleached from the um, ocean acidification levels. So I'm wondering what your, your thoughts are on how we can kind of create more emphasis on biodiversity loss and ocean health rather than just this rigid climate change focus that we seem to hear in the mainstream. Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, the biodiversity loss, we're in the middle of, they're saying the sixth great extinction, right? So, and this is the Absolutely. first time that it's human caused, right? So before it was, it was not, we weren't doing it, but this time we 100% are. Um, and a lot of that has to do, I think, with, um, with sort of old fashioned development um, uh, systems um, for the way that we um, create and maintain communities and cities and housing structures you know, we, there are a lot of old zoning uh, requirements on books that are the antithesis of smart planning and smart growth, um, you know, where you've got builders who are trying to do, um, you know, smaller um, domiciles on smaller plots of land so that you have better density and less um, impact on environment. But the zoning requirements in those particular towns are like, you have to have a lot of this size and you can only have one residence on that lot. And so it really, it requires the destruction of, of habitat and the destruction of uh, agricultural um, lands. It, it, I mean, it, it really, it, it's advancing all of the things that need to not be happening any longer because we know better, but undoing those zoning rules and trying to get, you know, communities to, to, um, to, to think in a different way, like it, it's going to require young people teaching that up. Do you know what I mean? It's going to require them saying to their parents and their grandparents, do not fight this, you know, re this new zoning uh, ordinance, because it's what needs to happen. Because, you know, parents and grandparents, they uh, generally are worried about like, oh, well, my land values are going to get destroyed or my, you know, my home value is going to get destroyed. And it's just not the case. I mean, there's no data to support that. Um, it's really just uh, um, displaced economic fear, honestly. And so, 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 you know, it, if we don't change the way that those systems are operating, um, the biodiversity crisis is, it's not going to go backwards. Like we're not going to be able to get our arms around it. Um, and that's just one example um, in a very sort of Western perspective, you know, mm -hmm. in, in other countries and developing countries, you know, it, it's how do we help them or how do we not help them <laughs> develop right. Right. in a way that is similar to ours because it's the wrong direction. Like we've already, we've already seen that. So please don't develop the way that we did, but it's hard not to, because what they see is, um, is, you know, big homes, you know, that feel uh, like they are more secure, like they are um, uh, more desirable. Do you know what I mean? And so it, mm -hmm. I don't, it's just, a, it's a tricky question, that one. They, they all are. 
Um, I, I get the gist that your organization kind of lets the kids find their passion and then you kind of give them the tools to kind of, I don't want to say exacerbate it or kind of try and, and continue to increase advocacy on a, on a th- spe- yeah, specific issue. Um, and that's similar to what I decided to do in my business is to allow the clients to choose their own nonprofit, whether they want to focus on um, specific carbon drawdown or legislation or more market-based solutions. I think it's, it's great to empower people to really feel like they're, they're doing what they want to do, whether it's just a broad bucket of climate change or environmental stewardship, whatever it may be. Um, as far as what are your personal thoughts on um, climate action versus like w- reducing the waste stream? I just wanted to throw this in at the end. Yeah, I mean, I think what the what the young people are teaching us um, is that everything is um, is connected, and that you know that we have to stop treating those things as mutually exclusive, sort of siloed issues, and which has been the tradition of the NGO communities historically. It's like, oh well, here's this group, and this is what we're working on, and then here's this group, and here's what this is working on, right? And meanwhile you know, everything is interconnected. And, and for the most part, you know, if, if I, you know, if I, you know, blow too hard, then you're going to feel that wind, you know, across the room. And so, so what the, the young people, what we're noticing with the work is particularly within Planetary Alliance, but more broadly is like, they don't, they really don't want to silo that stuff out. What they want is to get to, to the bottom of the systems, the, the issues that are systems level, and then let, a transformation of those systems um, address and inform all of those things that need that need to be addressed um, and not try to address them at at each individual item. Yeah. I mean, that's really tough because what I found what I found is when you get deep enough, you get to the um, existential nature of human greed and selfishness, which is a problem that people have been trying to solve since the beginning of time. But um, hey, what you know you never know when there's going to be a newton or an einstein who comes around and cracks a code that can get us a little bit further down the down the lane uh, it's been really great having you on the show lisa i really appreciate your time any what do you think um what can parents kind of do to support the work that their uh, their kids are interested in uh encourage and support them like you know do get them involved in programs where they can advance that work get them connected to other young people who are doing that kind of work. Um, we have, we actually um, do have sort of support groups within the Planetary Alliance for the parents themselves, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's mm-hmm. to have an activated young person who's dealing with issues that, um, that can cause a lot of mental stress um, and um, sometimes depression to some degree, if they don't see that they're able to move the needle um, what we have found in the life of the organization at Captain Planet Foundation is that young people understanding their agency to change the world that they're living in is the is the um, antidote to uh, to climate anxiety and depression because they're agree, not just do you know what I mean and so we really try Personal to encourage experience. parents yeah. to help yeah, yeah to help them. Uh, engage that agency and train that that themselves to to be more successful agents of change, so that uh, so they can get out of that cycle. And so that's what I would say to to parents is is encourage them and and engage them more deeply in that work. 
Yeah, no, I've I've said this on the show multiple times. When I first I first started by talking to climate scientists, and then I started talking to people who were doing work on the ground, and then continuing to build my business. There was a a, a moment where I learned a lot about the issue and the fundamental science behind it, and got really anxious. And then I just kept pushing forward, and then got to the point where now I'm more optimistic than I ever have been. When you're when you when you can tell that there's millions of people doing work, and you can be one of them, and you can create a huge impact. So, uh, well, Lisa, I I want to thank you for leading this work. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate what you're doing at the foundation. And just any final pieces of advice for more like young professionals or like, you know, just graduated college type folks who are really passionate about building a better world? Yes, I think they should follow your incredible example and they should figure out how they can make their business part of the solution and make their work part of the solution. I remember when I was working for U.S. Green Building Council and there was all of this um, funding that had been um, put into green jobs training and a um, a workforce development person from one of the big um, counties in Georgia called me and said, we have all this money for green jobs training. And I said, okay. And they said, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. And they were like, what's a green job? And I was like, oh my goodness. Well, all, you know, ideally all jobs are green jobs. Like that's really, you know, what, what we need to do is, is teach people, you know, what are the ways that they can in any work that you are doing, um, be part of a a climate resistant and a, and a renewable energy future. And, and everybody, if everybody would just make that part of the um, the work that they're doing the way that you are, then we this this problem will be gone in a generation. Um, but everybody has the opportunity and everybody should take that opportunity. And I really, I want to commend you again. I think it's just extraordinary uh, what you have conceived and, and begun to implement and model. So that's really great. Yeah, thank you. And and I, I fundamentally agree with you. And when you talk about integrating it into your business, it can also be integrating it into your company. You can be the sustainability person at a large corporation or the small insurance firm that you work with. You can be that person and you can really fundamentally move the way the organization operates and probably meet other people who are not saying anything that are believe what you believe as well. And uh, I, you just can't can't go wrong, in my opinion. But um, yeah, Lisa, thank thank you so much for the time. It's been absolutely delightful having you on the podcast. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon, I hope. You got it. Absolutely. All right, everybody. And we'll see you on the next one. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.